0: Totally, dude. It was because it was in the most hostile environment economically and physically that I've ever been in. And to see freedom of transactions in that environment was just a rush because that freedom was taken from us. You know, we couldn't wire dollars to our friends in the US. We couldn't wire dollars to pay a medical bill.
1: This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome in, everybody. Thrilled to have you here. This week's episode is truly special. Josh and myself, Dan, were joined once again by Mauricio Di Bartolomeo. Mauricio is the co-founder and CSO of Bitcoin borrowing, lending, and financial services company, Ledin. What's uncovered in this discussion is that Mauricio's motivation stems far beyond just his business interests, entrepreneurial spirit, and even bullishness for Bitcoin. Mauricio's background and perspective have given him a unique and inspiring passion to spur on and build products that enhance financial inclusion. Products built for everyone, including the billions cut off from the global financial system. This episode is jam-packed start to finish, and if we dare say so ourselves, it's worth all hour and 40 minutes. We cover topics including a detailed exploration of Mauricio's life journey growing up in Venezuela, how and why democracy fails, why bitcoin is so freaking special and empowering as internationally neutral collateral, ethereum and the merge, stablecoins, Crypto contagion, and much more. We are proud at BCB to be partnered with Ledin. And as this episode demonstrates, their integrity, discipline, and transparency have allowed them to shine bright in this bear market, while many other companies have embarrassingly imploded. You can check out more details about Ledin down in the show notes. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is powered by, you guessed it, CoinKite. We've been messing with our new cold card Mark IVs and we can tell you with confidence they are super supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. This signing device or hardware wallet is incredibly secure, Bitcoin only, easy to use and affordable. Plus, let's be honest, not bullshit anyone and cut to the chase, all the cool kids in Bitcoin are using it. The beauty of CoinKite's suite of custody products is that they align with the entire spectrum of Bitcoin users. From gifting your grandmother some Bitcoin, who hunts and pecks on a keyboard and barely knows how to turn on a computer, to hardware fit for complex and impenetrable air-gapped multi-sig setups, CoinKite has it all. All CoinKite products are at CoinKite.com, and use promo code BCB for 5% off select purchases, including the cold card. Okay, enjoy the episode, plubs. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Mauricio, back on Blue Collar Bitcoin. It's a pleasure, my friend. You are, in our mind, one of a handful of people in this space where I just want your opinion on literally freaking everything. So we're gonna try to we're gonna do this in an hour and twenty minutes and try to respect your schedule, but it's gonna be tough. Yeah, we got a minute timer on every question for you. (laughs) Yeah. We're gonna try to shut up and get out of the way, but that won't work. No, no worries. You guys are too kind. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure
0: to be here. Uh, I'm a big supporter or and a big fan of your show. Um, and I keep saying that it's funny that one of the best grassroots Bitcoin shows in Bitcoin in
1: America sponsored by two Canadian companies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, we go to the best. Uh, step it up, America. Seriously, yeah. get your Seriously, shit together, man. United States, because Canada, per capita, these Canadians know their Bitcoin. I will tell you
2: that. Yeah, there is a stellar, there's just a ridiculous amount of like solid Bitcoiners out of Canada. What is it? Why? I don't know what you guys are drinking in the water up there, but... Maybe there's there's no fluoride in the water in Canada, is there? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't
0: know what it is. I um, what I have found in in part of the Bitcoin community here in Canada is that um, so um, some I would I would argue a lot of us or a good chunk of us are immigrants to Canada, mm. uh, and I, I actually find that across the Bitcoin space in general, there's a lot of people that come from say places like Venezuela, Argentina, if you look at Wences, and it's because we don't need to be explained Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Uh, and many times when you left that country and you came to Canada because you recognized that, that mistakes were being done in that place and that policies and, and money and, and such wasn't going to get you places and you came to Canada. I, I, I jokingly refer to this as the US's natural immune system uh, that keeps getting reinvigorated because every time a Venezuela collapses or a Turkey collapses or a, Iran, Iraq, all those people searching for freedom kill themselves to come to America. Uh, and when they get to America, they or Canada, they, are, they have a fire to build uh, because they now they feel like they can finally do that. And so I think that every time these events happen, these unfortunate events happen and all over the world, it, it reinvigorates these sort of beacons of freedom that we have as mm. countries. Uh, and actually, this is a point that I want to make later on, uh, uh,
1: but, but I'll, hold, I'll hold my comments for then. Let's, let's go deep into your background. We did this a little bit when you were on before, but I want you to get comfortable, spread out here, and take us all the way back to the beginning, family, how you grew up, Venezuela, coming to Canada. I've heard you do this a couple times, and it's a, it's a powerful story. Uh, walk us through it.
0: No, I appreciate it, and uh, and I mean kudos to my my parents, honestly, because many of the things they did, uh, and actually even my my now wife, uh, she's a big part of, of, of a lot of that journey. Uh, but I will I will start with the beginning. You know, I was born in Barquisimeto. It's a it's a cent- it's a city that is uh, t- today it's about a million people, uh, probably less, and it's dead in the center of the country. Like if you if you look at the map of Venezuela and you throw a dart it's like literally bullseye uh, and because of that it was a really good um the reason my dad set up shop there is because it was an industrial city where a lot of the agriculture would basically it was a distribution hub for the rest of the country so like you know beans with commodities would come in from one end of the country and then from there they would go for everywhere else and, and same you know manufacturing would ship to the center and then they would disperse and so i had a bit of an industrial um, complex and that's where my dad's uh first business was he had a shoe factory um and uh, i grew up uh and i want to say i was probably middle uh you know upper middle class in venezuela i had a uh you know i i had a privileged upbringing i would say i i, I had the opportunity to go to a great school um uh, and and i and i lived in a really beautiful part of the city um and it was really you know growing up it was like a dream you know the the venezuela is 30 degree weather all year round uh they have you know miles and miles of caribbean so i would go to the beach which is only two hours away from my house my dad would take us on the weekend Uh, my mom had a little farm uh that we would also go on the weekends and so i was constantly outdoors and i i I remember my childhood as you know some of the happiest days of my life um i i still think it was it was amazing i i was um i i and then as i got older i started listening to my dad talked at the dinner table about money and like his business. And so I would always, it, would always, it was always fascinating to me because he would start talking about the amounts, right? So I have to pay so-and-so this many thousand. And then it was like, oh, I have to pay so-and-so this many million. And that's so and then I have to, so-and-so this many billion. And I'm <laughs> like, and then the numbers kept getting crazy and like crazy. Like dad is getting super rich. And, uh, and so that was kind of like my first, whoa, like this, these numbers, like they, there's a lot of numbers that just keep changing. And um, and then the other one was I was getting into my teenage years and I started kind of reading a little bit about, because my dad was an entrepreneur. And so I started defining what I wanted to do or, or be when I was really young. And I just wanted to emulate my dad. You know, I loved the, the life he had. I loved his like the way he started businesses and, and ran them. And so I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I remember very young, I don't know why this came up. But to me, I had a very basic thought, which was if I want to make money, first I need to understand what money is and how it works. Because if I don't, then I'm gonna have a very hard time getting it and keeping it, because I'm just not gonna understand how it works. So then you start reading economics books and all these things, and they tell you things like debt is bad, Um, assets depreciate, right? Like these basic common things. Let's start with those two. Debt is bad, first one, okay? I had to learn I had to read that, and then I would look at my dad, and my dad would take loans, any loan anyone would offer to my dad in Venezuela, my dad would take it. In fact, he was emphatically looking for loans, like all the time, and he was doing pretty well. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, wait a second, I'm like these people tell you not to take debt, yet the smartest people I know are like dying to take debt head over fist. I'm like, why is that? Well, then you discover that you can use that debt to buy assets, (laughs) Uh, and then sometimes you can get access to that debt at a lower cost than inflation. And effectively, you are just printing money if you do this, right? That's what Americans do with their mortgage. It's it's Mm -hmm. what they've done perpetuity. So that was thing number one that I was very illuminating to me to to see that in Venezuela, this concept of that debt is bad did not hold true. The second one was assets depreciate. And so you would hear in Venezuela, people would desperately buy tr- uh, c- cars. There, it was very hard to get inventory in Venezuela of cars. There was, it was a big of, of, uh, obsession with cars. Uh, and the thing was that cars in Venezuela, people would brag about buying the car for, say, 10,000 bolivares, driving it off the lot, and a year later they could sell the same car for 20,000 bolivares.
1: Sounds like our firehouse right now, Mauricio. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know. The guy has
1: like three or four cars now.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then we'll, we'll, we can get into that because we started seeing a lot of that in the COVID era. Right. Mm-hmm. But these are behaviors of a of a, of, a, of a monetary system that is in the process of dying or it's in the process of breaking. Right. And be, these are the signals that you see. And... Um, So because of those things, I I became very obsessed with money. I wound up, um, um, well, before that happened, uh, Chavez, uh, who many people know, in 1998, there was a big political event in Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela had a lot of problems. Venezuela had a lot of inequality already before Chavez. That's what kind of gave rise to Chavez or or opened up the opportunity for him to come. And um, when Chavez came in with his political agenda, um, a lot of people were naturally concerned that he was not, you know, he was basically, he was a, he was a, a, to give people context on who Chavez is, Chavez had tried to overtake the Venezuelan government by force as a military twice and got jailed. Um, he was pardoned by the then exiting president on the threat that if he didn't pardon him, he was going to, like, coup. Like, he was going to do a coup. And so he says, do you either pardon me or I'm going to take you off through a coup. And so the government pardons him. Um, many people don't know this, but the first thing Chavez does after he gets his pardon is he gets on a plane and goes to where? Canada. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, he goes to Cuba.
2: <laughs> yeah, and he lives in Canada now.
0: <laughs> so he goes to Cuba and he starts getting uh, his training for his upcoming campaign uh lands back in venezuela starts a campaign to become president um and you know you know insert story here you know uh or insert this story happens often which is populist government comes in with wild promises uh speaks to a base that gets enamored by these promises and Mm -hmm. he wins through a landslide and he immediately wants to rewrite the constitution uh landslides that changes the country name changes the currency changes the time zone changes the flag coat of arms um and after a president does that you can only imagine the ego trip uh that allowing to rename and re rewrite the rules of the game can do and that means he can't he basically there's nothing he can't do um i'm getting very long and drawn in the story sorry guys No,
1: all good keep it rolling
0: um so um So when this happens, many families look at this and they're like, wow, okay. Like, we need to do something about this. Uh, We need to hedge our stuff here. And so they went up to their most willing kid and said, hey, do you wanna go study abroad uh, in case things go south? Uh, So then you can have a a feature up there. So that that was me and my family. I came to Canada and that's how I ended up at the University of Western Ontario doing the business program at the Ivy Business School, which is where I met Adam, my business partner and co-founder of Lennon and once i graduated the country just kept coming downhill like it it was just a disaster venezuela was falling apart but at the same time which is a horrible thing that happens in in commodity economies when a country that produces a lot of a commodity gets a populist incompetent president the price of that commodity soars and that's what happened in Venezuela. For, for, for that and other reasons, the price of oil soared as Chavez was destroying the country. Mm. And that made his budget only bigger. Mm-hmm. And so that poisons the feedback loop of society. Because mm. society was seeing more money in the streets as this guy was nationalizing everything. And as yeah. the smartest people in the country were leaving, people were buying subsidized t- you know, Texas uh, prime rib steak. Uh, because Chavez made food cheaper. But that he was just using oil money to, to, make, to, to create an illusion.
2: Yeah, it's a short-term solution that makes it look great for everybody, but in the long term, it totally collapses. Correct. Just really quick. So yeah, go I, ahead. Just on the point of Chavez, because I, I listened to you talk about him on another podcast, and what you just mentioned about how this, this whole idea of democracy sliding into dictatorship on the back of populism seems very you know relevant for the day. Um, We see this populism in the United States. We saw it, you know, elect Trump and it waxes and wanes, but it seems to be increasing over periods of time, like the polarization. And I don't want to talk about politics for an extended period of time here, but this is something that to me jumped out as like, this is a real alarm bell that people should think about, because just because they tell you we're going to eat the rich and everyone else is going to benefit from it in the longer term. Um, that doesn't, that's a hollow shell to be to be eating the substance out of. You are going to eat the economy from the inside out, and it may appear, as it did in Venezuela, that this is beneficial if for the short term and for maybe the short-sighted, but you are eating, you know, your seed corn for the next five to ten years and hollowing out and destroying your economy. I don't know exactly how Canada is set up politically, but in the U.S., we're a democratic republic, which means that there are a set of rules, the Bill of Rights, where things are not changing, at least not for, it would take a massive political movement to change the Bill of Rights. But that is there for the reason of this, the populace, like the the supermajority can't just take the rights of the minority. It's there to protect minorities from overbearing dictatorships of the majority. I mean, <laughs> not to get into all of this stuff, but it's its a very important point for people to understand, is that is a stopgap, or that's a measure that's there to protect The U.S. at least from this kind of thing. Theoretically, obviously, you know, somebody can get in and change the Constitution. Some future dictator similar to Chavez. It's always a risk and people need to understand like the beginning, middle and end phase of where this stuff starts, stops and can potentially go. So I I can tell you what I used
0: as my trigger points for saying, holy This is getting off the rails and there is one particular flag that i use which is any new president regardless of the platform you may think he's populist i may not think he's populist anybody that upon election or or runs on the campaign of rewriting the constitution be wary of anybody trying to rewrite the constitution Mm. it happened in chile just now they just voted no for their new constitution, but a, a, a new, a new uh, candidate who ran on the promise of rewriting the constitution won. And the first thing, that, well, it, it was running in parallel before the election, but he tried again. And again, you know, I'm not the only ones doing this. If you go look at the Chilean peso chart and you look at the date that he got elected, <laughs> the peso is off a cliff. Like nobody wanted mm-hmm. to hold the peso the second this constitution was a a no vote the peso recovered wow um but the guy immediately said like any good president that runs on a campaign like that does that that wasn't the end of it that he would try once again to rewrite the constitution and you always try to rewrite the constitution not on the premise that you want more power you always rewrite it on oh these are crazy unfair things that are happening look at this environment getting destroyed or look at the rights of these people that they don't have them and they and most of those things could be fixed by a bill. <laughs> but right. no, no, you want to rewrite the whole shabazz. And so, yeah. and it's not, to me, rewriting of the Constitution is a big flag. No matter when it happens, is a big flag. Um, and the other one is the, the destruction of the institutions. So in Venezuela, it didn't happen overnight. In Venezuela, first, they um, destroyed the National Assembly. Uh, then they started changing the rules on how the congressmen got elected Um, then they started changing the weights of certain cities for representation so they over indexed where they would win and and under indexed what they had a when they didn't uh, when they had a minority
2: yeah mauricio what was the time frame of these these events like from one to the next was it a fairly short period of time was it an extended period of time
0: so it was a bit of a slow death in the sense that the first one was the rewriting of the constitution but again all of these events you have to take them in the context of what's happening to society in this moment right Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. he presents this idea of rewriting the constitution when oil is starting to rip so there's money on the streets Everybody feels good this guy just got elected there's like a warm fuzzy feeling in the, like in the US when they elected Obama everybody felt yep. united and and free and like this is a plan that we can all get behind and that's when people bring their guard down and and effectively that's what this guy starts to jam this thing through right so there were some people that never put their guards down right like there were some people that were looking at this and we saw the constitution go through and we were just like oh my god like what can't this person do we've just given this guy literally a blank slate to write our fate and and he wrote it in a way that perpetuated himself in power perpetuated his party in power uh eliminated any chance of his party getting democratically kicked out and now we're at this point where effectively democracy is broken in venezuela but nobody has the rights to go in and fix it and so it's just going to stay broken Scary as hell. Anyway, I didn't even get into how we got into Bitcoin and, and how that led into Ledin, but <laughs> Wait,
1: wait, before we get back to your story, and I want you to, once I'm done with this question, we can, let's get back to filling the gap from you in business school to, to where you are today at Ledin. What are your quick thoughts on Bukele and El Salvador? What uh, concerns do you have? Uh, we've read Gladstein's piece. We've kind of tried to stay neutral and investigative as, with this, but it's certainly not all good. What's your opinion on what's going on there?
0: So my, my very personal opinion, and again, you know, politics is a very uh, subjective thing, but I think um, my concerns are similar that, you know, he, I believe he's now seeking re-election, uh, which was something that was not allowed in El Salvador. In fact, I just saw a clip of him mentioning that that was one of the best things that El Salvador had, which is that the president could not go twice in the same term. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't mean he can't get re-elected it means he just has to wait a term to get re-elected that that's how it's currently written right uh, but he now wants to change that to stay and I think that's a red flag I, I don't think that's great I, I do think that from what I hear and the people from El Salvador that I speak to I believe that the people from El Salvador are happy with him I believe okay. that the people from El Salvador are, are seeing benefit uh, in their data days, since he's been in power, um, but that doesn't mean he gets a pass on everything, for sure. Uh, yeah. And so, I have similar to you guys. You know, I've i i wanted, or I, my intention is to not take sides on these political debates. You know, I my, I just try to run a business that solves problems for people, and I don't want my the, I think we're we're. When things get politicized, they, you can't be a clear thinker because you have to be taking sides and, and you just have to remain agnostic.
2: Yeah, and somebody always hates you. <laughs> just for, I just want to get this out there. Like I, nothing perturbs me more when a company comes out on one side or the other. Like you're just a company that produces phones or whatever. Nobody cares about your politics. And you're just burning, you're burning to the ground any, any goodwill you have with the customers that don't agree with you. Like it makes no sense to come out and say anything political.
0: No, and I and I don't disagree with that. I, I think that's a very fair point. And and the other thing in Latin America is that you know Latin America is, is historically a politically volatile uh, region of the world. And um, you know, again, I think Bukele is doing great things for the for their its people. And I and I you know I like the the El, the El Salvador Bitcoin project. Um, you know. Could this project have been done and announced without fireworks and Megatron presentations and you know done other things? Yeah, prob most likely. Uh, and if you talk to somebody from El Salvador, they'll tell you like, yeah, I like Bitcoin. I don't know if the fireworks were necessary. You know, yeah. they they'll tell you that, and I'll agree. And so um, I think that so long as he does not disrespect or try to s- impose his own views. Into this El Salvador constitution, or you know, uh, does things that break his initial promise, then you know I think it'll be okay. But I think the, the if he starts trying to cling on to power and and do these things that are not what is supposed to be done, then that's when things can start getting off the rails. Um, and um, and I think you know again, just as much as I may like a politician in Latin America, regardless of his affiliation. I've I know I've been through too much in Latam to to attach myself or associate myself to any one political project you know blindly without taking the other side. So I yeah. I, I think he's got a a good plan. I do have some concerns with his sort of some of this some of the signals that may point to the fact that he may want to remain in power.
1: And I think a good takeaway for all of us and and this isn't necessarily all directed at Bukele, but we can't get so blinded by Bitcoin Orange that we're overlooking threats to human rights, autocratic behavior, and concerns on that front. Like we have, to, we have to go back to the roots of what has worked for human organization, and I understand no system's perfect, and maybe democracy's the best, worst way of human organization, but it's had a lot of benefit for the flourishing of humanity and human rights, and we need to protect it. And just because somebody likes Bitcoin doesn't mean we should pile on without being incredibly critical of behavior that's concerning.
0: 100%. And, and again, you know, when you can fight something for so long that you may become the thing you were fighting against,
1: mm. right? God, and, and this that- is such a good point. This is, this is to, to go personal here for a second, there are so many people In in, uh, many categories in life, they get frustrated with binary, closed-minded thinking and then end up ping-ponging to the opposite extreme. They become just as binary on the other side. So this is from my own personal experience. I grew up in a a very conservative religious context, but I see a lot of people on the atheistic side adopting Mm, the exact same behavior. It has no nuance. They're not embracing any gray. Everything's super definitive. They have everything figured out. It's the same problem they ran away from. And it, it happens over and over again. And it's something you have to resist your entire life if you want to maintain intellectual integrity. Yeah.
2: And I think it gets more difficult the older you get, too. Um, there's just something you just have that less plasticity and you you whatever you've believed in for, you know, the first 35, 40 years of your life is kind of set in stone unless you're very diligent about just challenging yourself, really, is what it comes down to. Like keeping your mind open, but not so open that you're a fool. Um, very, very hard line to to, to ride, you know?
0: Oh, 100 percent, you know, and I've had to I've had to like sort of walk that line or think about that line, too, in the sense that, you know, Bitcoin is unique in that it is open and accessible by all and permissionless and it can be used by your enemies, too. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you have to be okay with uh, or, or, you know, you, you just have to acknowledge and, you know. Uh, you know when you think about I remember actually in the context of of back in Venezuela when when things were really really bad and governments were trying to Help by way of sanctions and such But uh, trying to kind of choke the regime or, or you know motivate them to at least listen to their people uh, To to no avail and I remember that this was right around the time when Maduro started to push the Petro You know because they were gonna use crypto to sort of help them with these sanctions and Um, At the time, I was, you know, I I had to, you know, it was hard for me because I I had to, you know, know, this concept of, even if you look at the internet, right? Like when the internet came out, people said, well, it's only gonna be used for bad things, right? But Mm -hmm. the argument was, no, actually, you're gonna share information and education and there's gonna be more good than bad. And that's the premise of the internet. Like, yes, bad things happen on the internet, but primarily it's done so much for the world, right? And if you look at Bitcoin, it's similar. Bitcoin is is, is similar in the sense that Bitcoin will give property rights and access to money to people that have been locked out of it for their entire existence. There are billions, and Alex Gladstein says this often, 87% of the world doesn't have a reserve currency or democracy. Bitcoin fixes that for them. Now, there is also a subset of bad people that may benefit from an open and permissionless uh, system, which will be a very small set of people. Uh, but the net benefit for the world is going to be a massive positive impact, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and these are just the, the, the nuances that are, you know, you have to, as you get older, you just have to understand and, and acknowledge that that's this, some of these things are going to, a lot of these points have a lot of nuance, Right, mm-hmm. and and you just have to be willing to accept it and try to think clearly about the trade-offs.
1: For sure. Okay, so take us from um, business school in Canada to where we are today, and along that journey, what made you and makes you so freaking bullish on Bitcoin collateralized borrowing and lending?
0: Yeah. So um, when I'm when I finished my school. Uh, My university, I I took a job in Canada doing sales and marketing uh, for a condominium uh, developer. And um, as I I did that and I saw my country kind of falling apart, I kept trying to get my parents and my family to move out uh, because I didn't want them to be stuck there or something bad to happen to them. There's a lot of crime, kidnaps, stuff like that. And I just wanted to get them out. Uh, But they were reluctant to leave. It's very hard to leave your country. Um, mm-hmm. It's my you know my grandma is 101 and she's still there, um, you know I have a lot of family that's still there, um, and naturally that makes it very hard for my parents to want to leave and everything. And so it took a while. Most of them are out now, but it, back then they were all in. I was the only one out. I was out. that was just like the, the odd man out, and I kept trying to bring them in because I kept getting more and more convinced that Venezuela was going to fall apart. Um, they kept trying to bring me back because to them, having the family together uh, was, you know, very important. And, um, and so I, I went back for six months, you know, with an agenda trying to convince them, didn't convince them. When I came back for six months, I kept, I kept that for about a year or two. And in about 2014, after I did my master's, um, my youngest brother had finished university. And when we graduated, my father is a very entrepreneurial guy, as I mentioned. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the oldest of three brothers, and my dad, who, who was our angel, would like give us a little seed money to try our first venture out of school, right? To just kind of ex- get us excited. So I did my swing, didn't work out. My middle brother did his swing, didn't work out. Now it was my youngest brother's turn, and this is 2014. And the country's literally falling apart. And um, um, actually, so Chavez, Chavez dies. Uh, in uh, December 2013 um, and this is like right around that moment so Chavez dies the, the, the entire country thinks we're going to get democracy back and this, this again goes to show how the institutions were eroded because even though the head of the snake was chopped off they had, they had manipulated the electoral system so badly that it was almost like impossible to defeat them but even still, like, because of the way the country was and everything was in shambles, there was th- this was the chance, Like if, if it's, it's now or never. And people flew from everywhere in the country. I paid thousands of dollars to fly just so that my vote would count. Wow. And, and so did many, many people. I still remember the flight down. The energy in that flight, I can't, I can't describe to you the energy on that flight. Everybody was like, we're getting the country back. This is a one-way trip. We're not leaving. And uh, and so we get there. The election happens. Every we're winning. Like we're, when I say the, the democracy is winning up until 7 p.m. of election day. 7 p.m. election day, things go black. All of a sudden, the updates stop. The count, the, uh, the counting from the electoral center stops getting to us. Nobody knows. I start picking my buddies that are up in the counting centers, like the guys that are more involved. They're like i can't describe what's happening and at that point is when i I start feeling an empty in my stomach i'm like are they gonna take this like are they actually gonna take this from us this visibly and so that is crazy and so the updates start coming and and my buddies are like it's not looking good man uh and like they're gonna they're gonna take it they're they're not closing the centers they're they're bringing in people they're manufacturing votes um and you know and so when this is happening this is like the society this there is no leader at this point mm-hmm. every one of us organically decides to start walking to the electoral centers and people are starting to get really really heated like mm-hmm. you're walking to the election center being like all right let's see the numbers let's do the count uh like we just want to see it do the count um and so people are ready at this point to stay stand their ground and not move and we're all waiting for the candidate who lost the election to basically go out and say do not leave the electoral centers we're getting a recount this is not over like that's what everybody was waiting for because that's what everybody knew was happening effectively what was happening behind the scenes was that the bad guys were talking to the candidates and they said listen guys we won and that's how it's going to be. And if you guys want to pretend we didn't win, we're going to use force. We're going to bring the military out. We're going to shoot you guys down. Same way we have before. Yeah. And the guy that... And we, we knew that because these, had, these things had already started happening. And everybody at those centers was well aware of what could happen. And I was there when the first rocks started getting thrown and things started getting heated. And it was in that moment that my wife pulls me aside and goes we have to go (laughs) we have to go because you could already hear shots like literal shots being fired the next day a guy i knew got shot and killed um and that happened to a couple of other people that i kind of knew through the grapevine young kids 16 years old 17 years old shot dead by real bullets not pellets uh was your and, wife from
2: Venezuela as well? Was yeah. she So she's familiar, she understands what's going on. It's not like she was oh, from yeah. Canada and this is all no, everywhere. She, she okay. gets
0: it, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, at, at that point, um, it was clear that it wasn't a fair fight, right? Like, we were trying to win with votes. They were trying to shoot us down. And it became obvious that it was just going to get more violent and that there was no democracy left. Like, hmm. democracy had been dismantled entirely. Um, and that's when I made the decision to get on a plane and come back to Canada, and 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 essentially and not look back. Um, and, and I made the point that I said I'm not, I don't want, I'm not going to let myself get drawn in by these fantasies of democracy once more. Time, uh, mm. this is gone. This is this state, the state has failed. Um, that's when I leave. After all of this, my youngest brother still didn't want to leave the country. He was, And my dad was, like, desperately trying to, no, my dad was desperately looking at his business pitches, trying to, like, not discourage him, but also trying to, like, encourage him to leave. But my brother was like, oh, you don't like this one? Don't worry, I'll make another one. And my dad would be like, is it out of the country? And my brother would be like, nope, it's still here. (laughs) Um, And so one of these proposals, my dad calls me late one night, and he goes, Maori, your brother, as you know, has been sending all these proposals. And I think, you know, there's one that I really don't get I want you to look at. And I'm like, sure dad, what is it? He's like, he wants to buy these machines to mine this thing called Bitcoin. And I'm like, okay, He's like, send me whatever, send me the details. So my brother sends me, I think it was the white paper and the link to Bitmain for the ASIC that he wanted. And um, and I start reading about it and I'm not like, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you guys that I'm this technical guy and I read the white paper and you know, a beautiful mind right. started drawing. It clicked right away. Yeah, yeah. you know.
1: <laughs> I got it immediately.
0: I was like, the way I kind of did it in very simple terms was, okay, these computers protect the network, they use a lot of power, and they produce this asset that can be sold worldwide for dollars. I'm like, well, electricity is subsidized, Venezuelans can't get dollars, so if you get dollars down there, you're going to do very well. Seems like this is probably the best thing you could do in there, (laughs) uh, because you can sell it anywhere. And so I said, it looks okay, My dad green lights it he gets his first machines i go back down later that christmas and of course as the country was falling apart everybody was trying to get everything out and this is when all the capital control started coming in you couldn't buy dollars you couldn't buy rice you couldn't buy beans because people anything that wouldn't expire people would trade their bolivares for anything cards beans rice sugar anything you could barter and and effectively it was barter society for a long time for a couple of years and it was in this time that my brother um that I, I led back i go to his facility every one of my friends is like their face is like this they're like depressed they're like you know where am i leaving i'm liquidating my house i can't even afford a one bedroom in buenos aires which is where i'm going i don't have a visa to get there uh, everybody's like planning where they're leaving how much they can get for their assets meanwhile my brother is like beaming <laughs> like skipping a step everywhere happy I'm like Marty I heard a lot of your friends are leaving let me know if any of them have a place or industrial facility they're looking to rent I'm looking and I'm like this kid I'm like what are you doing what are you really doing he's like I'm mining Bitcoin I'm like show me and he's like come in come over to my office and I go into his little little boxy room where he had like I think it was like eight or nine a six at the time and I go in and he's like I'm like, okay, show me. He's like, okay, I'm going to sell this Bitcoin. I'm going to sell it to Bolivares at the real exchange rate, at a fair exchange rate, as if it were a dollar, and you're going to get this money sent to your bank account, and it's going to take less than an hour. And I'm like, oh, okay, buddy, go ahead. And he goes, D-d-d-d. and he sent it to an exchange called Sir Bitcoin, which was working at the time. They, of course, they're in jail, like anything that works in Venezuela. Um, <laughs> and, Not um, funny, but funny. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, And so the transaction goes through, the money hits my account less than 20 minutes. When that money hit my account. Your
1: head exploded.
0: I cannot describe to you what went through my mind. I I had to stop everything I was doing. I couldn't even come back to the work I had in Canada. I had to like reduce myself to part time because I was just like too into this Bitcoin thing that I couldn't even sit at a desk for the day and like (laughs) do something else.
2: Mauricio, what Um, year was this? Roughly. This is
1: 2015, early 2015. Okay. It's hard. It's also, I want to say that it's hard for somebody in the United States to understand what that would have felt like for you in that place, in that time. We totally. take this stuff for granted to such an extent, right? Totally, dude. It, it was it,
0: because it was in the most hostile environment economically and, and physically that I have ever been in. And to see freedom of transactions in that environment was just a rush, because that freedom was taken from us. Yeah. You know, we couldn't wire dollars to our friends in the U.S. We couldn't wire dollars to pay a medical
2: bill. Yeah, was your brother concerned when he had this operation ongoing that it was going to get seized or he was going to get in trouble for what he was doing?
0: No, because no, not, none of the, nothing of what he they didn't was even doing know was what illegal. It was or- it okay. was just, it was complete. nobody knew what was happening. It was just completely, like there was no legislation, there was no regulation, there was no, in Venezuela there isn't. And, 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 and what is doesn't get followed. <laughs> so um, it's, it's a very gray area. But at the same time, if you're not hurting anybody and if you're not bothering anybody, then why should you be getting in trouble, right? You're not doing anything illegal. Um, and so our facilities start growing and because of our excitement and, you know, To exemplify how not only we were not worried we were excited and we wanted to tell everyone around us to do the same thing because it was liberating and we started doing this and we started helping people grow their minds and my brothers keep growing their minds everybody kept my my mom's mining my everybody's mining like cousins aunts um this became viral in venezuela um and that this went on for a few good years uh 2016 and then 2017 comes um, and I forget exactly, um, well, the country was in shambles, as it always has been, because oil kept coming down. And, um, and it was around the Petro time where the government realized, I mean, this is a very long drawn out story as to why we got to the Petro. But the Petro was effectively a way to, to train the local corrupt officers or corrupt members of government to train them on what these machines looked like and how to extort miners. Because they could basically go into someone's facility and say, you haven't registered this equipment. This equipment is ours. You know, uh, Mr. Maduro just passed a law that says that, you know, we can seize all of this. And even if he didn't pass the law, it's like you either give me all of this or we're taking you to jail. Why? Because I feel like it. Yeah. Um, And so after the Petro, all these mining facilities started getting raided. Um, and unfortunately, my brother's facility was one of those facilities. Uh, and when their facility got raided is when my family made the decision that they had to leave. Because it was, it was it was basically at this point they were coming after us in a completely innocent, like we were, there was no reason for anybody to come after. This was just like prosecution. They were, they were literally going after innocent people uh, and, and threatening and coercing them. And so um, that's when my, my brother makes the dash to leave the country. Um, and um, and it was a very scary time uh, when, when he was going through that, because this is effectively like, you know, organized crime coming after you. Um, and they have and, and they are the good guys internally, right? Like they have a license to kill, literally mm-hmm. A license to kill, disappear, whatever you want. And so he makes the run for the border and you know he leaves. And luckily, actually, um, we were able to take a lot of the money out because it was in Bitcoin. Like he didn't have time to go to the bank to do the, the wire to take his assets after. Like the, the reason we were able to port our lives so fast is because a lot of it was already in Bitcoin. And- um, and freaking
1: uh, awesome. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a, at in the time, it didn't feel like, oh my god, this is the greatest use case. You know, <laughs> at the time, it was yeah. like, we yeah. need to get out. Oh my god, this is incredible, um, and it's very scary. But then you realize, what if I hadn't had Bitcoin? Uh, you know, what would have happened? And so anyway, as this was all happening, everybody was growing their minds around me. I was in Canada. Canada doesn't have free power. I couldn't, you know, grow the minds the way other people were. Um, but I did have a mine. I built one with Adam, and we were trying to grow it. And again, you know, we keep we're, we're trying to grow our minds, and we're like, hey, maybe in Venezuela it's okay. You, nobody will give you a loan in Venezuela, but maybe here in Canada somebody will give us a loan. And so we went around and be like, hey, look at this. This is look at this facility. You know, we're going to invest it. You know, would you be able to finance it? You know, we, we're willing to put the Bitcoin as collateral. <laughs> Before like, what? Wait, what? They would laugh us out of the room. And after a few of those things, we're like. I know the use case. Like, I know who needs these products. I can sell this product because I understand who needs it. And I know the problem it's solving. Adam had been financing renewable energy for 10 years. He knows what the institutions want to see in order to underwrite. And we're like looking at each other, kind of like, I think we could do this. Like, I think we could solve our own problem. And, uh, and so we put together a deck. And we went to a few investors. And the guys in the investors were like, okay, we're supportive of this idea. You know, we would be supportive. We're like, oh, damn. Okay, it looks like we're gonna get some support. Like, we need a team. And so we went to like our smartest friends. (laughs) And, you know, uh, Mina, who's our CTO, was at RBC. Carlos, uh, who runs our treasury, was at Bank of Montreal. Uh, We had a lot of friends at banks, luckily. (laughs) Um, And when they heard what we were up to, they were like, okay, this sounds much more exciting than what I'm working on, (laughs) Um, I'm in. And so we had Mina, our CTO, decides to come in with RBC and bring some of his devs. Then our Carlos was gonna run our operations. He was coming from Bank of Montreal. Then Anton, who was working on like this crazy academic, uh, uh, very complex uh, academic uh, blockchain group in Amsterdam. We pulled him as our, sort of our uh, security advisor and becomes our developer. And at this point, I'm looking around and I'm like, we have a rockstar team. We have the support from our investors and we can do Canada's first Bitcoin back loan. And so then I went to a bunch of my Bitcoin friends and the first guy who decides to take a loan is Francis Puglio uh, from Bill's, uh, uh, Bull Bitcoin. I don't know if you guys know uh, Francis, but he was, you know, uh, back then, he still is pretty active, but back then he was very, very active, especially in the UASF movement and everything. And so we announced Canada's first Bitcoin back loan in November, 2018. The company was founded in August 2018. The first back loan goes in November, 2018. And our dream always had been when we launched the product that it could be very helpful for people everywhere because Bitcoin, it was the first time that the asset was gonna be the same no matter where or who you were in the world. And that meant that we could give you the same rates no matter who or where you were.
1: Crazy idea. Internationally neutral collateral, right? And to, to, to us, that was just
0: like, wow. And then we started doing this and we put the platform in Spanish. We put this platform in Portuguese because we knew people down there really needed this. We made the product start at 500 bucks because we knew they were, they were new. People wanted to try them. And then people started coming and they started taking loans. It, it, it was magical, honestly. Um, and the company was doing, we were starting to like, you know, get our footing. And this is like February... Uh, February 2020 and then COVID happens you know and the prices dropped tremendously a few of our well a lot of our loan clients you know suffered because the prices had gone down but we were there calling every single one of them and we spoke personally to every single one of them giving them options explaining to them what was happening and even though it was hard for a lot of them they understood what had happened and how we had reacted and to our to where you know to, to still I, I think you know i wasn't expecting this but after that we started getting these positive reviews from people saying you know what happened was you know bad the prices crashed but like the way Leonard treated me was incredible i i'm so happy that i that i work with these guys and i will come back and i'll continue to do business with these guys and i was like i was like, wow that's you know, that's all we want. That's all we need to hear, right? That we, you know, would always do our best, and we didn't know, frankly, how long it was going to take for things to come back. Um, it was, it nobody knew back then. It was, a, it was, a, it was a tough time, but we just kept at it, like every day, and then when the market started turning, um, we started seeing the same people come back, and. In a crazy stat, actually, over 80% of clients that have had loans closed uh, at Lettend, uh, whether they got closed because of the price drop or they closed them willingly, come back to Leden to take another loan. Mm. Um, and when the market turned, they came back and they brought their friends. And we didn't have a crazy marketing budget, but people just kept coming. And it was because other people were telling them. And then at that point is when the VCs start taking notice. And, uh, and then, as, uh, you know, later that year, I think we announced the round, it was, like, early 2021, we closed our, 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 our seed extension with White Star Capital. And then from then on, we did Series A and Series B with, with Kingsway and 10T. And during 2021, like, all throughout last year, we went from eight people to over 100 people at the Damn. end of the year. Yeah, like, our, our assets got to 1.7 billion. Um, wow. And... Yeah, anyway, I went on a big tangent.
2: So um, So you've got we've got the story now, all the way from, you know, Leiden's beginning to now, and then that first crash in twenty twenty, which must have been a real sphincter uh, moment for you guys. Tell us a little bit about what transpired at Lein in this last blow up we had where, you know, Celsius and the rest of these guys got swallowed down into the, the depths of the uh, the kraken. How did that <laughs> how did how did that play out for you guys? Like what was it like to be running this company?
1: watching this whole thing implode. Those, these other lending companies are blowing up around you. What a unique environment, man, before you go, because I was thinking, I was trying to put myself in your guys' shoes. And it's like, even if you're you're safe and squared away, this is not a chill time to be doing Bitcoin lending, right? No, not But at all. here's the interesting thing. It's like a tough ass workout you're in the middle of because what's happening right now is you're chiseling yourself to come out on the other side much stronger because for the average hardcore bitcoiner leaden is uh shining brighter and brighter as clean survival is becoming more apparent in the middle of this shit show so it's like this too it's in some sense this is great for you guys while it's i'm sure incredibly painful and uncomfortable i'm interested to hear your take here
0: no yeah no i I appreciate the kind words i think you know i have to give credit to our amazing team like we are a team of 100 people plus 120 some now and every single person was all hands-on and our response times to clients were actually faster than our average (laughs) uh during the crash and um and that was something where the entire team came together and said, you know, it was like, this is our time, you know, like this is when we need to shine bright, right? And, uh, you know, I can break down what happened and, and a lot of these things were happening at the periphery of Lettend because we're, we we're not involved in many of the activities that led to these people going bankrupt. Right. Um, um, so the first thing that ended up, the first thing that kind of triggered the whole thing was Terra and Luna, right? The collapse of Terra mm-hmm. and Luna. And because DeFi is transparent, people could see which lenders were involved in this. And the second they put two and two together, they were like, oh, wait a second, that's where my dollars are supposedly getting (laughs) the interest from? They're Ooh. like, oh, I don't think this is so great. And so then they start pulling assets from these companies, right? Not Ledin, we never touched DeFi with client assets. We've, no, we're
1: not exposed to this problem. You haven't been in the crosshairs of Corey Clipston. just calling these people out, just sniping them. The... <laughs> so so
0: th- we were never involved in Luna or Terra or anything like that. So Ledin was, Ledin's name never came up because we were never involved. But the names of some other big lenders did come up and then size. And, and naturally, the people that saw those movements were like, oh, okay, this, I guess this isn't as risk-free as I thought. Um, and so they start trying to withdraw their assets from these platforms.
2: I mean, it was totally risk-free as long as you were comfortable holding Luna. <laughs> <laughs> totally risk-free. So,
0: so when people start withdrawing assets from these platforms, they start exposing a different issue which is that a lot of these platforms were taking assets on open term, meaning I give you this and I can withdraw it at any time, and they were offering to pay an interest, but to earn that interest, they were turning around and lending that asset committed for two years. Uh, so when you invest in something like mining infrastructure or financing a miner or you know lock that asset up into a three-year fixed-term contract somewhere else, you create a liquidity mismatch or an asset mismatch. And so what happened was as people were trying to withdraw their assets, some of these lenders start running into solvency issues, liquidity issues basically because they don't have the assets available to process the withdrawal, okay? And so then to get those assets they start doing these wonky things like posting a different asset as collateral to borrow the asset they need to fulfill their withdrawal huge problem, by the way, because <laughs> at that point you're now creating an asset mismatch on top of things. So yeah. as people started seeing this, they got even more nervous and the withdrawal started taking longer, more people started trying to withdraw assets. And these companies, they didn't have the the money essentially to fulfill these withdrawals. Um, and um, then, then there was another issue which is that many people were lending to this very big group called Three Arrows, um, who went bankrupt. Uh, Three Arrows approached us three different times. Uh, We we never onboarded them, we never had a a lending relationship with them, so we were never exposed to Three Arrows. But there were other companies that were lending billions of dollars to Three Arrows without ever seeing a financial statement. And um, when those companies went down, or when Three Arrows went down, the hole in the balance sheet of the companies that I lent to them was so big that they couldn't recover. Um, and some crashed, some had to come and get bailed out. And I think what this highlights is that not all lending platforms are created equal. Um, <laughs> what I will share about Leden, you know, just to kind of round out you know, what went down and why we weren't impacted is we support two assets only. Bitcoin and USDC, those are the two most liquid and most in-demand assets in lending all across the board. So we don't have an issue trying to get an asset that has no market for lending. These assets have it. We don't touch DeFi with client assets. Uh, That is why we were not involved with Luna or Terra, and that didn't happen. We did not lend to three arrows. Our, Our underwriting standards are incredibly strict. They've only gotten stricter after what happened. And we were the only lender or I still think to this day that has a proof of reserves at the station report that, that clients can verify every six months. And yesterday, I guess just you know, to, to mention, we, in we, you know, a time when uh, some auditors are walking away from some other lending products, um, we were able to, or we, we basically announced that we appointed Deloitte as our external auditor. Um, and this was announced yesterday. And so, again, I think this is a testament to our commitment to transparency ongoing and really the fact that not all lending platforms are created equal.
1: Yeah, you folks have been watching this bloodbath from the high ground. And uh, it's going to coming out of this is going to be a big, big deal for you. Uh, Seriously, hats off. Congrats to you folks. You guys
2: have been upwind from that barn. That's (laughs) reeking
1: for sure. Uh, Appreciate it. Appreciate it. I want to talk stable coins for a second, and maybe let's tie them to international access to dollars. Because you're actually someone that's allowed, allowed this to click for me more, um, the role that stable coins currently play. couple questions. What types of stable coins are there? Why do you pick USDC? And then what's the significance of this stable coin discovery? And then maybe how it ties to your products.
0: For sure. So in an overly simplistic description there are I, I would categorize two main types of stable coins so there is the fully reserved or fully asset backed stable coin and this is a stable coin that holds a reserve in the exact same unit as it mints so if you give a dollar into the reserves you mint a one dollar token and if you try to redeem a one dollar token you get one dollar and if there are ten thousand tokens there are ten thousand dollars it's basically one-to-one backed by the same token that by the same asset that represents that unit in that token okay that is an example of that would be USDC uh, or the PAX dollar or true USD you know these are companies that their models are based upon having dollar reserves to mirror the number of units that are free floating in their system Mm -hmm. that is arguably the most easy to understand and the one that has thrived in practice today. Then there is a second type of stable coins, which is a stable coin that tries to mirror the value of an asset, but it is not backed or collateralized by that asset. And an example of this would be MakerDAO and DAI, uh, or the failed Luna Terra project, whereby these, these, Stablecoins have these algorithms that run very complex Logic on the back to basically Constantly sell or buy collateral in order to maintain the value that it's supposed to mirror And this causes these assets to have an imperfect peg To whatever that asset is so it can vary by cents From a dollar, right? Uh, And that makes that that gives the asset interesting attributes one it is um Um, not constrained to the asset that it's backing it in the physical world if you would because it could be all programmatically recreated in in a computer Um, and the other one is that um, you know you can you know you you can be way more creative with the technology uh, you know but but frankly the only such project that is still around today that I think is used by people is Maker every other project has failed
2: and blown up spectacularly These these things strike me as like sounding like an academic idea where like on paper and theoretically makes total sense Like all we're gonna do is we're gonna have this coin that gets bought and sold and it's gonna peg itself to this dollar And it's all gonna work great like in theory But then in the real world when the shit hits the fan and there's no buyers and you know This is gapping down with like a 20 to 40 percent difference between the actual price and the price of a dollar like it just unravels instantly Um, The the question I have for you on these lines is you delineated two different kinds of stable coins, which is like USDC backed one to one uh, Stuff like uh, Luna, which is like a, you know, Fugazi What about Tether? Tether's kind of in the middle because they have assets that are Quote-unquote backing it, but they may not be dollars. They might be real estate or You know loans made out to I forget the name Binance. I think it is. How do you view that one?
0: Right. So, you know, obviously, in between the two that I mentioned, there's a wide spectrum. So, even in the algorithmic stablecoin spectrum, Maker works because it's over collateralized. Um, it's an over collateralized algorithmic stablecoin. Mm-hmm. Luna and Terra was an uncollateralized algorithmic stablecoin. There was no collateral on it. So, that's what caused it to unravel. Maker has been able to withstand the ebbs and flows because it has collateral that it can sell right? And, and basically maintain or defend the value of its currency in that way. But Luna had, didn't have that. And going to Tether specifically, I think there is no definition of a stable coin, right? And so there is no requirement of the reserves, to, at least today, that what a, of what a stable coin can't or cannot hold. But if you ask, um, you know, most institutional investors or most operators, you're going to want to see in those reserves cash or cash equivalent. So cash or treasuries, U.S. treasuries. The second you start veering away from government paper, and by government paper I mean a bill or a bond, mm-hmm. when you start getting into commercial paper, um, which, which be- the risk becomes much higher to price. Um, it becomes m- much more of a black box because you you know a loan to a corporate could be very safe or could be very risky. You just don't. It depends on the company right uh, but a loan to the u.s government is a loan to the u.s government there's one u.s government like you know um and so i would put tether in the in the sort of backed or or one-to-one camp but the reserves are not as transparent as usdc usdc to give you an idea has their bank, their assets or their dollar assets sitting at a jp morgan account i'm pretty sure that's a jp morgan and they get audited by grant thornton every month any one of our clients can go to the USCC website and look at their most recent audit. Um, and you can see that they're one-to-one backed, uh, not the case with Tether yeah. uh, or, or most others, I would argue.
1: And liquidity sounds like it may be a little bit more unknown with the Tether collateral.
0: Correct, correct. And, and going back to like why this is so important, most people around the world don't have access to dollar savings options. So for, I'll give you an example, in Argentina today, so looking at leaden's data halfway through last year we had four times as many people in argentina using the bitcoin savings account relative to the usdc savings account today in less than a year we have twice as many people using the usdc savings account versus the bitcoin savings account interesting so it has flipped and doubled uh from four to one to now two to one on the other side and what has argentina experienced over the last year hyperinflation What happens when you're experiencing hyperinflation is you want dollars, okay? Most people around the world understand that the dollar protects them from the valuation of their local peso. And so what people know and gravitate to is the US dollar. When I was in Venezuela back in 2015, when this, when I, what I was describing to you was getting into Bitcoin and in the middle of these horrible capital controls and restrictions, when you told people, I don't have dollars, but I have this thing called Bitcoin. They were excited, but they were like, so what is this thing? And can I sell it for dollars? Really? And, and will I get the same? Are you sure? And like, how do I get it? Like, what's the address? And so it's, it's one more unknown. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if you show up to the same person and you say, Maria, there's Bitcoin. And then there's also this digital dollar that if you're not quite ready for Bitcoin right now, this this will serve you right now. It, it, you'll go from pesos to dollars. It'll be digital. You can move it around just like Bitcoin. You don't have to worry about trading in or out of it. It's dollars. You're not gonna lose your 10% of your wealth tomorrow. And you can then choose to buy Bitcoin later if you want, not buy Bitcoin, keep it in dollars, send it to anybody abroad, pay for things, like do whatever you want with these dollars. They are digital dollars that person's head is going to explode because that's exactly what they are looking for. Mm-hmm. They will, having a stablecoin account at in gives you, you know, arguably the same opportunities or, or functionality for someone down there. It gives them more functionality than their bank account ever had. And so to them, it really connects them to the global financial system. Mm. It, People take for granted that everyone's connected to the global financial system. They are not. um, They are not. They are willingly disconnected by these governments. Stablecoins allow you to come back into this dollar ecosystem. Um, Imperfect as they may be today, they allow you to protect the value of your savings in a format that is much easier to understand for someone that is in need and doesn't have a time to go read Andreas Antonopoulos' book.
1: Man, this is, this is a really important theme and mildly controversial in the maxi space because people, there's people out there going, why would you guys ever talk about stable coins? We only talk about Bitcoin. Most of the people saying that have access to dollars, right? If you're talking heavy shit about USDC and you're out swiping your Chase credit card everywhere and you've never thought about any difficulty accessing the world's currency, right? Because you have unlimited access to USD then it's kind of unfair for you to be throwing stones. I really respect Gladstein. I mean, he's you could say Gladstein's one of the most principled Bitcoin forward thinkers out there. And he's spent enough time around the world and in the human rights context to understand the world runs on dollars. People need dollars. It's cute to sit here and talk about everything's going to Bitcoin and that very well may happen. And there's a good chance that maybe 30 years from now, Venezuelans will light up to Bitcoin just the way they do to US dollars right now. But to participate, you need dollars. And there are very few circular economies that work to keep your lights on and feed yourself and get paid and do everything in Bitcoin. There's basically none. So realistically, if you're plugged into the real world, you need access to the fiat currency that works on the monetary network of the world, which is dollars.
2: Yep. Hey, yeah. Mauricio, before we go, we have maybe like ten minutes left here. I really want to hear your opinion on the merge. Mm. So Ethereum, we're on stable coins and USDC runs on Ethereum. So you guys had to pause transactions in USDC on your platform because of this. So the transition, as far as I'm understanding it, seems to have gone pretty smoothly. Things are working all right, at least for now. But that, to me. This is almost indicative of what we spoke about earlier, which is in the short term, this seems great, we're using less energy, all these ESG considerations, we're making all these politicians happy, we're petting them, but we don't know the long-term security implications of this, there's a lot of decentralization or centralized issues that can propagate from this. Regular people like you and I, like Dan and I at least, aren't gonna be running a node because it's so complex and overbearing Talk to us a little bit about what your opinion on this is, how this is going to play out in the short term and potential issues that it could arise in the longer term.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a good question. So, you know, given the complexity, you know, wh- no matter where in the fence you sit about the merge, the fact that it went down so smoothly is, is a testament to the work that these guys have put in because they, they literally switched the engine on a plane while it was mid-flight. Right, and so I I think the the first thing to to acknowledge is that this was a big technological feat and probably a pretty significant event in in crypto, if you want to call it outside of Bitcoin. Um, Maybe I'll I'll separate the implications to the end user versus the implications to potentially like an operator or or a company in the space or or somebody that's more involved in the space. Most end users don't really care what blockchain they're Their dollars running on (laughs) they just want dollars (laughs) right and they want to transact them fast and they want to transact them cheap and if i told them that that dollar is running on solana or cardano or ethereum they frankly would not care like most people the majority of people that need these stable coins are very much technology agnostic um and so to them to, to the extent that more network effect can concentrate on the Ethereum network because it's now going to be able to compete in terms of fees with things like Solana or Cardano or et cetera, I think this is probably going to be a net positive for the end user because um, over the last year, I believe there was a lot of sort of development activity and, and you know economic activity that went to other chains because they were proof of stake and faster and this than ETH or that than ETH. And now that ETH is basically, the same consensus mechanism as all the others, plus all of the network effect, I think ETH is going to bring back some of that use. And I think for the for the end user, it might simplify things because now you just need to keep track of everyone's ETH address and not their Solano's and their Cardano's and all these other addresses, right? It, yeah.
1: it, it could become easier to use. Um, Wait, one, one comment on this too is that Ethereum being centralized is a huge problem if your worry is censorship resistant fixed immutable money. Uh, ethereum is not competing on that front, but stable coins are centralized anyway. so if ethereum gets captured which it probably will, um, it's status quo for stable coins you could say in a sense, right
0: yeah so I think if you look at like the risk of of losing access or, or not being able to give access to these coins or not these coins, if you look at it from the vantage point that if you if you put too much oversight on these operators or too much oversight at a protocol level, you're going to reduce the number of people that this can get to, right? And and reduce the the ability of its network effect to grow. There there is a risk, uh, as you point out, that the current validators for this under this new model are getting really concentrated,
1: extremely concentrated. It's yeah.
2: Forty six somebody said that they're oh, I was looking it up, I can't it was channelysis or something, but forty six percent of the blocks so far have been mined by Coinbase and Lido. I mean Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> that's something to worry
1: about. I I mean if that were <laughs> yeah. if it were Bitcoin, I'd be pretty worried about it. But we're talking about a completely like Ethereum's not especially after this transition, I mean we're not we're not talking about the same asset. They're not in the same space. They're not competing for the same end game no. in, in my view. They're they're totally different categories. It's like us talking about equity and Bitcoin in the same conversation. Like it's over after the move to proof of stake. Now that may accomplish things that people in that ecosystem want, but we're we're on a totally different set of rails, right? And it's yeah. leaving Bitcoin alone now is kind of the sole proof of work. Like I said, robust globally decentralized, immutable option. I'm assuming you kind of see it that way too? Totally. I I think if Ethereum wants to be the world
0: computer, they have no interest in being money. Uh, And I think Bitcoin wants to be money.
1: It has no interest being the world computer. I did respect Voorhees yesterday, who basically sent this tweet that said, stop with the ultrasound money narrative. Just stop. (laughs) Right. I mean, he's a huge Ethereum owner, but he's like this is it's not ultrasound money we just changed the consensus mechanism like let's just stop let's be what we are right go do your own thing but don't try to be something you're not right and i respect people in ethereum that are willing to have enough technical and monetary know how to recognize that that's not the problem ethereum has the ability to potentially solve you know
0: i think that's that's spot on i but and i also think that it's been increasingly more clear what some of these platforms are trying to be or projects are trying to be versus what they are not um i think you know if you look at ethereum they've wanted to be this this has been in the roadmap from you know three or four years ago when the first time i ever went to listen to somebody or vitalik listen listen to vitalik talk about ethereum he was talking about the merge already this is back in 2016. Mm -hmm. um and um and so this is not a surprise for anyone that's been in this space for so long, right? Like this, we a lot of people knew that this was coming. This is their stated purpose from day one, um, or very early on. And so it's not so much a surprise. I think, you know, again, Bitcoin is ossified. They they don't they they don't want change. They want predictability, yeah. right? Whereas on Ethereum, if, you, if if you think about it, like computers. I can't think of something that upgrades and changes faster than a computer, right? And so the the network needs to stay nimble, needs to be able to like add new things, functionality, uh, upgrades, so that you can keep adding these facilities. Money, Bitcoin's not trying to do that, you know. And so I think they are very different assets. Uh, and and people, you know, will w- with time, people will come to think of them. I would argue as as very different.
2: For sure. How this is a cynical point of view, for sure, but it. It comes to mind because you see things like the World Economic Council making comments about how great it is that Ethereum is moving over to proof of stake because of the energy savings and things. But then you also have in mind that this is a very centralized, centralizing movement. And then, it, then the story of, you know, in Venezuela, when suddenly the votes were swinging one direction, it was looking great. And then all of a sudden, boom, the, you know, the power comes in and says, no, this isn't the way this is going to go. It's going to go the way we decide it goes. That's the concern that I have with the way Ethereum is going. I mean, honestly, not that I care that much, but it's, the two, it's these two compounding facts. The fact that there's more and more pressure on proof-of-work mining, and there's more and more relief or like applause for more of this proof-of-stake point of view, which proof-of-stake I think most people understand in the space is simply the kind of mechanism we've always had, which is the centralized people with money and power are the ones that are going to make the decisions. Those two things happening simultaneously, very concerning to me personally.
1: It's reflective too of the fact that the communities are just wired so much differently. Um, Like they just, the the groups of people that are involved in these two projects are so, so much different in terms of how they're motivated. Most Ethereans are not obsessed with robust decentralization. And if they are, they're on Ethereum Classic. Um, <laughs> unless I'm completely missing it, I, I don't understand how you could possibly defend this move from that vantage point. But that's not what's motivating them. Um, and and back to the kind of stablecoin thing, that's not what's motivating people purchasing stablecoins either. Like they just want access to something that reflects U.S. dollar valuation. They're not obsessed with how decentralized the protocol is running behind it and the way i kind of view stable coins has sort of already been expressed but it feels like if we are moving towards a bitcoin standard it feels like scaffolding as we're building the structure but it's very important scaffolding you can't get to the steeple without seven stories of really well built scaffolding you'll kill people along the way trying to build it so we need the scaffolding as we're as we're building could we <laughs> could we tf on one more thing just real quick There's yeah dude
2: um taro on bitcoin how do you, what do you think about that? Um, what do you think would be the impetus? Why, why would any of these, like, so let's say USDC, what would give them the impetus to want to move over to something like Taro in lieu of Ethereum or Solana or name your other alternative?
0: Distribution. It's a simple answer. <laughs> you know, um, the, the USDC, for, for instance, they already run in multiple chains. USDC is a chain agnostic operator. Most stablecoin operators are, and I argue, should be chain agnostic um, because their job is to keep a dollar token reserve and get that to people in the fastest and most efficient way they can. And right. those ways can change. Today, Solana is cheaper than Ethereum. Tomorrow, Ethereum might be cheaper than Solana. And the day after tomorrow, Tarot might be cheaper than both of those things. Mm. And so, USDC and operators are in the business of getting those things into the hands of as many people as they can as fast as they can Mm -hmm. and the Lightning Network is building its own distribution rails right like you could argue that you know today they might be smaller than Solana's rails or smaller than Ethereum's rails or whoever but you know two years ago Solana didn't exist Um, and so it's not to say that because it's in a state now that's the end state that it's going to reach right and I go back to People are technology agnostic. If they can get a dollar and pay less, they will use that. They don't really, they're not going to sit here and be like, oh, is that a Solana USDC? Oh, oh no, 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 sorry. I just, I don't want to take that. I want to take this other one. That That's not that's not the answer you're going to get. You're going to get like a dollar? Yes. Here,
1: <laughs> yep.
0: which here's the 8 million mm. addresses for whatever way you want to send it, right? Um, and so I'm very excited about Lightning stablecoins, coins, the, the, the potential of Lightning stablecoins. coins. Um, I, I do think that it needs to probably move a little bit faster given the current back macro context, because we're in a world where dollar is king and it is melting every other asset class at the moment. <laughs> yes, it um, is. And it is likely going to continue to do this so long as the Fed continues to rip rates higher. Um, And this is going to get even worse because right now we're at the early stages of the hike cycle and all the central banks across the world are putting up a big act of being like, yup, we can raise like you, Fed, don't (laughs) worry, raise. Eventually, you're already starting to see it, Europe cracked, Japan cracked. Um, The rest of the world is likely, Canada's gonna crack soon. They're not going to be able to keep up raising Was rates it, the same way as the Argentina Fed. Argentina
2: just raised their rate to 75%. Did you guys see this?
0: Yeah, but that's a joke. I know I it's that, a joke, yeah. but that's,
2: that's why I'm bringing <laughs> it up because it. Yeah. the rate of interest is 75%, but the rate of inflation is 100 so.
0: Correct. <laughs> and so it's never going to work. And, and even with the rate being 70%, you show up to an Argentinian bank and nobody's paying you 70% on your deposits yeah. on on pesos. So I guess all I'm trying to say is like, we're, we're in a world where dollar is king. The world wants dollars, and it's go- and it's getting them. I just I just share with you what we're seeing in places like Argentina, yeah. And it's going to continue happening, and so if people are gonna need are gonna get what they need, right? And so I guess the, what I'm trying to say is, if it, if you're in the right place in the right time, whether you are Solana, Tarot, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever it is, you're gonna get picked up, right? And we're about to enter the biggest dollar demand period that I think we're going to see in, in my lifetime. And I think that the best suited people to get that there are, are you know, either Ethereum or Solana, frankly, uh, or even Binance, uh, Binance chain, uh, to, to, to basically just really, really grow on this, on this uh, distribution base. And now we, we're doing a big push in Latin America to, to basically let people know that these services exist and to educate them and to present our articulation of these services to them. And we're seeing people come to these services. Um, and you know our, our token of choice because of transparency and, and just everything is USDC on Ethereum. Uh, and that's what we're providing to our clients. We obviously are looking to do more and help them uh, uh, to, to, to get dollars as, in the easiest way they can. Um, but that's, that's you know, what we've been doing and that's how we're contributing to this movement.
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, this outrageous teeter-totter between demand and not demand for dollars is a function of a totally fucked up monetary base. And uh, I think one of my closing comments is we just need a new base layer metric of value. Q Bitcoin, man. And this merge thing just has me thinking that now this is really out in the open seas, exploring a frontier completely on its own. There's no other ship in sight. It's very buoyant and a very robust ship that being bitcoin but it's rough seas man but it is on its own christopher columbus right now is just seeing what's out there i'm gonna
2: jump on your analogy here and say we can't assume this is the titanic ever though like be diligent try to veer away from those icebergs icebergs, yeah you you can't fuck around we do have enough lifeboats
1: but we don't want to hit a fucking iceberg amen mauricio we could we hit like a third of what we wanted to talk to today we want to be respectful of your time we know you got to run but man we'll cut you loose we'll have you on again because we could go for many more hours right now i it's hard to leave this but hey hey man no worries i can do 20 more minutes if you guys want sure let's go for a little longer if you've got it yeah yeah no worries i want to double back to lending um internet internationally like what is the significance of people being able to access dollars at rates that may seem high to you when you're looking at your mortgage but in terms of accessing dollars is actually quite cheap and maybe the mind of a venezuelan like what's the significance of this how is this nation in their mind and and freedom inducing
0: i'm so happy you asked that question so there's this concept in economics like i was telling you that debt is bad right um but In fact, most people with a mortgage have done tremendously well in their lives. And so debt isn't bad. If you can get debt at a rate that is below inflation and buy an asset with that debt, you are going to do very well, very well. When I was growing up, the way I understood this or the way this became evident to me was because during hyperinflation, the government never wants to admit how bad inflation is, so they will set the rates and they will tell you how they calculate CPI. But they change the formula for CPI all the time. You can basically back into the rate you want by changing the formula, and this happens periodically. So in Venezuela, what I learned was that the government said that inflation was, call it ten percent. And that meant that the banks could not lend that higher than, say, 12% by by mandate because they they couldn't be charging you more. You know, they they couldn't be taking that much advantage of you. So effectively, what you would do is you would borrow bolivares at a rate that you knew was well below inflation. Use those bolivares to buy dollars with them. So borrow the weak currency, hold the hard currency. Borrow weak to buy hard. That's the concept okay that concept works in Venezuela okay let's take that concept to the United States borrow weak US dollars buy hard house you did phenomenal Mm -hmm. just phenomenal even if even if you were borrowing if you look at the S&P chart (laughs) if you were borrowing dollars at like your HELOC rate and investing those things into the S&P you also did well mm-hmm. tremendously again borrow week hold hard borrow week hold hard okay fast forward to when we were trying to build our Bitcoin mine Bitcoin has a fixed supply we all know that we have all seen the price performance of Bitcoin it is a harder asset than the US dollar it is a property it gives you the same or similar property rights than owning a house does It is a hard asset. When I saw the opportunity to recreate this exact dynamic with Bitcoin, I could not stop thinking about it. Because Mm. not only would we do very well, our clients would do very well. And all we have to do is allow them to borrow weak dollars and hold hard Bitcoin. And that was a concept that was like fuel to the fire because I felt like I could articulate this to the end consumer in a way that my life experiences would allow me to articulate this. And the opportunity that I saw in Bitcoin, I had basically had already seen it in three different formats of currencies and properties and assets in three different countries. And so when I saw it, it was very clear to me. I was like, oh my God, borrow weak, hold hard. This is the same story repeating itself. This will be the mortgage f- for anyone that can't afford a U.S. property. They're going to have a Bitcoin, and they're going to borrow dollars against it. And this is the way we're going to get property and asset-backed lending to the world at the same rates. And I became emphatically obsessed with this concept of allowing this. And so did Adam. And today, that dream is becoming a reality. I, I believe in a world where you're going to be able to borrow dollars from your Bitcoin cheaper than Americans borrow dollars from their houses today. And there are very good reasons for this.
1: Yeah, explain but, this because you're like, for example, if we zero in on just you folks, your rates have come way down. If I remember, like they were close to twenty percent originally. Now yes. they're sub ten, or cl- I think in that range, right? And you, yes. c- it sounds like you think that's going to continue to decline. Why is that? so yes. F- fill our audience in on on what your yes. thoughts are.
0: Several reasons. One, zero percent loan losses. Lenin has lent over $500 million in four years, and we haven't lost a penny or a Satoshi. Wow. And through a and, fucking through cheat it, code.
1: <laughs> Dude, when you explain this to other people that are in TradFi, they're like, this guy's full of shit. Like, that's their takeaway. This guy is full of shit. There's no fucking way that's true. They don't understand how liquid this thing is, how 24-7 it is, how old, you know what no, I mean?
0: No, but they're starting to. <laughs> uh, they're starting to, but because the, the people that are bidding down our cost of capital is them. Right. Every time we showed somebody, hey, look, we lent $100 million. We didn't lose a cent. They're like, oh, I can lend it to you for a little, a little bit cheaper. And <laughs> then you're like, hey, look, we did $200 million and we didn't lose a cent. They're like, oh, well, I can lend you the next little bit, even a little yeah. bit cheaper. Inch and a little inch. bit cheaper. And a little bit cheaper. And it's coming boom, 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 boom. And now, in addition to this, the reason we haven't had any loan losses is because we can sell Bitcoin 24-7. It is incredibly liquid. It is almost infinitely divisible and it is a global market it can be sent and received 24 7. i don't have to wait till my bank opens or oh you know i can send it and receive i can liquidate if i need to at any time only as much as i need to i can't sell the wing of a house i can't sell the tires in a car i have to sell the whole thing it's binary with bitcoin i can sell as much as i need
1: internationally neutral always accessible collateral huge yes. deal man people that this hasn't sunk in for this is insane there's got there's just people out there that just hear that and they
2: don't the implications are massive and profound but like if you're not with someone lending money all the time or this isn't a concern of yours like what does it matter yeah i can sell it any time but the ability that you guys have to protect yourselves on the downside of you know all of these loans
1: is incredible there's nothing else like it, and the neutral component of it, like you can traditionally, you can't take collateral from someone in El Salvador, Venezuela, correct? But now correct. you can. You know what I mean? Another correct. thing that's underappreciated by Westerners and in G seven nations, like you have. So it's it's a match that is so made in heaven. It's hard to con- because for you folks, it allows zero percent losses. It's a it's pristine collateral, and then for people in areas cut off from typical financial rails it's access to dollars that they've never had before right
0: at at single digit rates
1: which they've never seen before and at
0: rates that are going to keep getting lower and this is going to enable so much down there i i cannot like so much development economic progress has been limited by high cost of financing yeah like of course people can afford to take chances in the us with zero percent money like yeah, of course. Your assets are rising to the tune of 20% a year, and your money get, you get your money at 0%, then I'll take chances all day long, right? Like, my, the value of my house keeps bailing me out every year, you
1: know? Yeah.
0: Um, the, in Toronto, to give you an idea, the average house in Toronto made more money in capital gains than the two people living in it for the year. And that has been true for the last three years. That's insane. Wow. Yeah, and, to, and so that is if you if you don't think that that's broken, then something's wrong with you, right? Um, if you don't think that anyone should have access to getting that appreciation of capital, then yeah. something's wrong with you. Mm. But the problem is that to buy a house in the U.S. or Canada, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars or you know tens of thousands of dollars to make a down payment and even try. And today, with the way rates are, that that's a pipe dream for many people.
1: Mm. But
0: anyone can start DCAing into Bitcoin. Yeah. And the second you hit $1,000 with that DCA, you can come to Letter and get a $500 loan. And that Bitcoin is going to keep growing on you. You didn't have to save 50 grand to buy the house. You can chip at your asset base day over day. Miguel, when they take their paycheck out of Colombia, can take a little bit and buy the same asset that Michael Saylor is using to protect his billion-dollar portfolio. Um, And that's empowering. That's incredibly empowering.
1: Yeah, i I wanna give you. I wanna have you do one thing for us because you know our show is obsessed with transparency. What do people need to be careful of? So there's people hearing this going, "Oh my god!" Like, I need to lever up all my Bitcoin with Leden. Like it's, you know what I mean. So like, let's be even as the senior, you know, the, the person that founded this company. Who is this not a fit for and who needs to be careful and in what capacities do they need to be careful with even your product? It's a crazy question to ask, but we're asking it, man
0: no man and i'm i like being very very honest with everybody that comes to use our products is so the last thing we want is for somebody to come to let and walk out with less Bitcoin. Yeah,
1: because it's not for everyone yeah we
0: want you to come in and walk out with more bitcoin that you came in that's mm-hmm. the goal yeah and for that you need to understand the products well the risks associated with the products and how you may need to react if any to protect yourself from any of these risks
1: all right go ahead and push some customers away here
0: <laughs> just <kidding>. no, <laughs> listen, I, I got to say it, we got to yeah. say how it is because we, yep. like I said, a happy customer is a customer that understands the product and is able to navigate this stuff. If they have a bad experience, they're never going to come back to us and that's not what we want. So if you're not ready for the loan, don't take it. You know, I, I, you know we're, we're fine to wait until you're ready. <laughs> um, so we are asset-backed lenders, as I told you. We don't run credit checks. The only thing we take as a security for the, l- the money we lend is the asset that you pledge as collateral. The value of that asset changes over time, okay? And where Lenin can get in trouble if we don't act responsibly is that if the value of your collateral asset drops below the amount of money that we lent to you, we have to be able to cover that delta. And if that's not the case, there's a scenario where, you know, everyone's Bitcoin is, is, is compromised. Like what happened with these other guys that just yep. went bankrupt, right? right? So in order to protect ourselves and our clients we have to sell at the asset when the value of that asset becomes close to the money that we lent to you hence zero percent
1: loan losses for those that correct. are confused why yeah
0: correct and now the flip side to that is as a client that means your bitcoin that you posted as collateral at the beginning will be sold a big portion of the bitcoin will be sold the the remainder after resettling the dollar debt all goes back to you we don't take a single penny we don't make money this is not a profit center like we you know we just this is a protection mechanism and so what clients need to be very aware of is that the price of bitcoin may come down and relative to where you borrowed what level it was when you borrowed you may need to add more bitcoin in a in a you know on a quick time frame uh, before it gets to the levels where we need to sell and because we can't control how fast bitcoin moves or how much bitcoin moves our system is basically set up on a price threshold so sometimes because bitcoin moves fast that means our clients have to be ready to react fast and the reason we are so obsessive about telling people this before they take the loan is because if when these situations happen as proactive as we try to be they can happen very quickly and so when the market starts turning there is no time for you to learn how to top up or you know what I'm saying? Like There's there's not always the time for you to understand exactly and ask all the questions you want to ask. So that's why we try to put it front and center and prevent people from getting to the point. That's really the best protection is understand the risks and plan accordingly. Hey, if you have one Bitcoin total, don't put that entire Bitcoin total as collateral for your loan. Save a bit for when you, if in case you have to go top it up. Right and so plan yourself accordingly and and so who is this not for? If you don't understand the product, if you still are not clear on how Lenden protects itself, if you still are not clear on what can happen to your Bitcoin if the price goes down or if the price goes up, if you have any questions around the product, I wouldn't take it. I would have those questions answered. Our team, we have a team like dozens of people that are sitting there ready to answer your questions so that this doesn't happen. Yeah. Right so ask away we're not shy and who else isn't this isn't you know perhaps who is who's who's this product maybe not for is our products require us to have custody of the assets for them to function So we're a lending company when you pledge an asset as collateral, it needs to be in our custody for us to be able to lend the money we do at the rates that we do. And when you try to earn interest with us, we need to have custody of those assets to lend them out and generate the interest that we then pay you. So our services need to be custodial by nature. And I understand that in the Bitcoin community, there are some people that are just not comfortable uh, giving up custody of their keys to someone else. And if that is the case, then you know, we don't have a non custodial product per se. Um, and so that is something that is a consideration as well. Um, and so, again, to each its own. I, you know, mm-hmm. what I love about Bitcoin is that it lets you be what you want to be and do what you want to do. It doesn't prescribe how to be used. Yep. yep.
2: Yeah. And as much as we tell people to hold their keys, like there is a, a time and a place and I'm sure even more so in the future when people will want to earn some interest and make a yield. But again, as we always say, like do your due diligence. Don't just hand it out to the guy offering the highest interest rate. Make sure that you understand what it is, or at least to the best of your ability, how it is that they're making 25% and offering you that rate. Because in the world of reality, that just isn't, uh, isn't a sustainable amount of money to be paying out. So yep. do your homework. Make sure you understand.
1: I have three comments about your product if you don't mind for our audience one is that um if you're not content losing the bitcoin you put there because we know this is incredibly volatile it's not leaden that's going to lose it it's you if you get called you get called man that's how this works it's obvious so assuming you're not content losing it you need to know how to top it off it should not be your entire stack and we would absolutely still encourage you and heavily encourage as we do all the time that you should learn how to cold store. You should have custody of some of this and that this is a unique use case because of some other end goal, many of which we've covered so far in the show, but Hey, it's it's, you gotta know what you're getting into. And I appreciate your transparency with that because like you said, if people don't understand the product, they feel like they get screwed. It's not a good fit. It's not good for you and it's not good for them. And like anything in this space, you need to know what you're getting into. Even with cold storage, man, we've had a lot of conversations recently. Like if you're not ready to set up that multi-sig or you can't store those keys appropriately, guess what you're not ready for? Or you don't have an inheritance plan, you're not ready for cold storage. Every step and every capacity in which you own Bitcoin, there's some self-ownership. And that's a little bit different than the system we're working out of, but it's a beautiful thing. And um, it's an amazing landscape to be exploring for sure. Yep those are all great all great points dan take responsibility
2: take responsibility for yourself
1: mauricio all right we'll we'll do this for real now we'll let you go today <laughs> um i don't know
2: um, we'll, can we'll i ha- do
1: it we'll have you on again man give us a handoff uh, audience a handoff to you Ledden, anything you want as a closer
0: um, yeah, you can check us out at leaden.io is our website. We um, are we're on Twitter at hodl with Ledin You can also check me on Twitter at Cryptonomista, kryptonomist with an A at the end and check out our weekly newsletter. I I draft and send our weekly newsletter and video every week to all of our clients, and you don't have to be a client to get it. You can just go subscribe to it. uh, Ledin.io slash blog. It's called the Bitcoin Economic Calendar, and we just cover uh, news and events that could affect Bitcoin prices for the week ahead. Thanks, Mauricio. Take care, man. Thanks, guys. Keep doing what you're doing.
1: Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast.